Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so She never said, let them eat cake, prom party. They established that. Yeah, they do. Can Thank you believe God. the tabloids? They're spinning <laughs> yarns. 17th, 18th century France in their TMZ. <laughs> God, that's the thing that I do love, though, is that as much as we like to act like, oh, we're so much more refined, things have changed so much. No, they haven't. People we, are still gossiping out in these streets. Yeah, we just don't have a single fucking person appointed to like Perez Hilton anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mercifully, but like instead, like it's been spread out to everybody. Yeah, very true. But it is just kind of like TMZ, the TMZ blame game. Yeah. Every day. God, fucking those ghouls. Vultures. Fuck them. (laughs) We are talking about Marie Antoinette prom party. In honor of Priscilla coming out like around now-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sofia Coppola has yet another movie out, and we decided it's high time that we finally do a Sofia Coppola film. And you know what? Fuck it. Why not? Marie Antoinette. This one seems like it's the closest to what Priscilla's doing. Yeah, I would say so. Um, this Which we'll is... probably end up doing that movie at some point on this show, too. Yeah, once Maybe next beco- year. Once it becomes widely available for all audiences, we'll definitely talk about Priscilla because I really, really want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about Marie Antoinette. This is Sophia Coppola's third film. It is, of course, about the famous historical figure of the same way, but done so in a way that actually acknowledges the teenage truth of many of the the stories and legends that surround her. Mm-hmm. And so to kick things off, um, this is a movie that I know you had seen before, but I don't know what your relationship is with Marie Antoinette prior to this episode. Uh, it's been a bit. There was, I mean, this really isn't relevant to the movie, but back in the day when I was like 20 years old, I was kind of like, the old guard of the LGBT center of Cleveland. And I took care of the kids as I would say, like people who were like 17 right? who desperately were like, I need someone to look up to in someone's house to hang out at when my dad's being a piece of shit. And I was like, cool, come to my apartment. Mm -hmm. Anyway, one of them was hyper obsessed with Marie Antoinette to the point where it was very annoying because they wouldn't stop talking about Marie Antoinette because they wanted to be Marie Antoinette. They transitioned later on. Okay. <laughs> but, so um, their egg was just cracking this whole time and it's likely because of Marie Antoinette. Yeah. I mean, it got into a weird territory where they married someone like 40 years older than them, I think, because they just wanted to be 
wined and dined. I think that was the aspect of Marie Antoinette that sounded appealing. Ooh, okay. So <laughs> that's just sort of a thing. But anyway, that specific person uh, took advantage of my kindness to such a degree that it broke me. And then I stopped taking care of young children because I just didn't have the bandwidth anymore. <laughs> oh, God. So um, some some people over overexert uh their 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 wants and their needs and their excesses and mm-hmm. I don't know that that seems like maybe something about this movie maybe the wrong things about this movie was ingrained in their heart mm-hmm. and so I've not revisited Marie Antoinette for about 13, 14 years mm-hmm. it's been a bit wow yeah what about you what's your relationship with this movie um so I saw Marie Antoinette when it first came out because obviously I really loved Sofia Coppola I especially loved the Virgin Suicides Lost in Translation I understand like why it is so beloved I get it it's just not a movie that resonates with me doesn't speak to my soul is this a Wes Anderson movie where we're just really showcasing (laughs) old Bill Murray (laughs) it like it's a good movie don't get me wrong it's a very very good movie but the Virgin Suicides like just really spoke to me and so to see Marie Antoinette and I love that it was advertised as being anachronistic similarly to the way that a Night's Tale was advertised as being anachronistic that was very appealing to me because I am not nearly as anti-period piece as you are. Well, most people aren't as (laughs) anti-period piece as me. (laughs) That's a very good point. Um, But it does take a little bit of extra effort for me to want to get into it because there's a line that we will reference a little bit later um, in discussing this movie, but all too often it feels like when people are acting in period pieces, they're aware they are in a period piece, Mm -hmm. but that's not how people actually lived. Marie Antoinette, is so alive because it feels like the people who are actually living in the moment and not looking back on it as like, oh, well, we must be hoity-toity and proper because it's a period piece. We like, have to be um, self-absorbed enough with our film in order to justify the fucking costume and set design. Right? Where it's like, why would you spend this much money on to recreate something if you don't treat it with utmost seriousness? Right. The thing I fucking hate about this genre. Which is why I like you know movies like Amadeus so much as well because because they do have the tale. Yeah, a, a night's tale. What a marvelous a piece yeah. that was. There are moments where the script and the characters are unafraid to be like, no, people back then were also like weirdos and horny no. and messy. People in the 1700s didn't have senses of humor, BJ. They weren't horny weirdos. See, and this is why <laughs> no, I gotta that's get, not a thing. This is why I got to get you to watch The Favorite, a movie you've still not seen yet. And I know it's because like you look at the advertising for it, and that is like anti-harmony all day but it's so fucking good because it does the same thing (laughs) yeah i'm fine with that like so i I don't know how much we want to like get into the fucking thick of this movie immediately but like there there's a turning point in this film Mm -hmm. where it goes from being like oh god like don't bore us get to the chorus Mm -hmm. there's like two pivotal moments where i I'm watching this going like, God, this movie is so much more fucking dull than I remember. Mm -hmm. The marriage is one part where it's like, okay, we're starting to switch now. We're starting to be a little more fun and Mm -hmm. silly because it's like Jason Schwartzman really doesn't want to (laughs) fuck. And then the other part is when she decides she just wants to go be cottagecore and live in like the backwoods. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, no, this movie is different now. It's like we'll, we'll get into like the theming of that before that. But God, that first 30 minutes was a little bit of a struggle for me. But by design. Yeah. No, definitely. So, yes, we are talking about Marie Antoinette. And with that comes, you know, a lot of history. 
we are not a history podcast. We nope. do not pretend to be a history podcast. Nope. So if you are very upset because you are looking for somebody to talk about the differences between Sofia Coppola's film and the actual history of like France, you're not getting it. Like, I'm no. sorry, that's not happening. I did precisely zero context and research about the real life Marie Antoinette because that's just... I'm not a history buff. That's not my thing. This movie has Rip Torn playing a Frenchman. <laughs> like, that tells you everything you need to know about what this movie's doing. Right, right, right. Like, bless him. He is trying to put on a posh accent, but the fact that that man was born in Texas bleeds through no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the context, though, that I do want to bring to the table, because I do think it's important, is that, you know, as has been discussed countless times on this show already, teen cinema often does borrow from either classic literature, Shakespeare, or in this case, a famous historical event, Mm -hmm. but allows it to embrace the teenage side of it. Because when people talk about Marie Antoinette, historically speaking, they talk about how she was wild and she was into gambling and threw these lavish parties and she was so irresponsible. I don't know. She sounds pretty fucking boss. And it's like, one, she sounds fun. And two, well, that's what happens when you marry off a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. Like, what did you expect was going to happen? <laughs> like, Essentially, she kind of won the lottery and then was told not to spend her money. But, like, you're going to spend your money. Yeah, she's right? she's 14 years old. She has never really had any autonomy. Like, basically, from birth, it's like, you're going to be a pawn in political gain. Mm-hmm. And then you're supposed surprised when she rebels i like i don't know what to tell you here yeah. i truly do not know why people were so shocked and appalled that this happened because what the fuck did you expect and then you think about like oh well she you know did these things when she was older and it's like yeah well look at the groundwork that was laid here like sh- i mean what <laughs> maturing really comes with the incentive to mature and she yeah. was not set up in a way where she needed to mature. She was set up in a way where it's like, pop a boy out of you, and then that's it. You've lived your life. Now, can, I guess, be Pretty a mother. Much. Yeah, your entire purpose is to give the king a son, and your husband doesn't want to fuck you. So, mm-hmm. like, that's going to be difficult. Um, but there is an oral history that Vogue magazine did in 2021 for this film's 15-year anniversary. And I'll be pulling from this throughout, but I think... The context that's important is how this movie came to be. So as we discussed earlier, this comes after Lost in Translation. She won an Oscar for that. Mm -hmm. And there is sort of an unwritten rule. And Diablo Cody has also spoken about this post Juno, followed up with Jennifer's Body, that after you win an Oscar, you kind of then get carte blanche to do whatever the fuck you want immediately after. So that's when a lot of people do their weirdo passion projects. And Mm -hmm. that's what Sofia Coppola did with this because she had been working on Marie Antoinette for a while, but there was no way someone was going to give her the money to do that. And then lost in translation won an Oscar and suddenly like, boom, there's the money that you want. Yeah. So according to this oral history, uh, Coppola had optioned the film rights to a British historian's best-selling biography, Marie Antoinette, The Journey, written by Lady Antonia Fraser. Of all the books that Coppola read about the doomed teen queen, she considered Lady Antonia's to be the best one, full of life, not a dry historical drama. Unlike other portraits, which drew her as an overindulgent harpy who deserved to lose her head, Marie Antoinette The Journey approached its subject with a radical sense of empathy. The elegiac should have its place as well as the tragic, flowers and music as well as revolution, Lady Antonia wrote in her author's note. Above all, I have attempted to tell Marie Antoinette's dramatic story without anticipating its terrible ending. 
Coppola wanted to do the same with a film. There would be no beheadings in her script, nor much to do with the French Revolution at all. Rather than reduce the queen to a sentence she never actually said, let them eat cake, Coppola wanted to show Marie Antoinette as she was, a young woman never taught to consider life outside of the gilded gates of Versailles. Marie was just 14 when she got sent over from Austria to become the Queen of France, Coppola told Vogue. I felt compelled to portray how her story had been misrepresented over time. I had this idea of how to interpret her life in a way that felt youthful and girly instead of academic. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I guess that leads into the plot synopsis, which is... The retelling of France's iconic but ill-fated queen, Marie Antoinette, from her betrothal and marriage to Louis XVI at 14, to her reign as queen at 19, and to the end of her reign as queen, and ultimately the fall of Versailles. There we go. Cool. That's that's it, all right. Basically, her life is one big slumber party with Rose Byrne. God, could you imagine? Do you know how much better life would be if everyone's life was just a slumber party with like sort of drunk Rose Byrne? Like she seems, she's my favorite character in this movie. She seems so much fun. She's having so. I want to hang out movie. with like the the Duchess. <laughs> Definitely. But before we dive in any deeper, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Happy November prom party! We have a very uh good month for you over on the Patreon this month. And by that, I mean we're doing Good Burger and Goodwill Hunting over on the Sadie Hawkins dance. It wasn't supposed to plan out that way, but I was like, you know what? Let's just fucking rock it. Let's go. <laughs> for our musical milestone mini episode, um, apparently Gucci Gucci by Cray Sean just went platinum and BJ lost her mind about it because she's a, a very unique apologist for that song. So we're going to dive into Crayshon and kind of trashy white girl rap a la Kesha's TikTok and things of that ilk. We only have two more months left of My So-Called Life before we are finishing up there. So we're cruising on with that. In addition to all of our awesome, good bonus episodes that you're going to get over there, the Patreon will also have the monthly playlist, BJ's wellness newsletter, and of course, the suggestion box so that you can go ahead and just throw some of your favorite movies you would like to us to discuss out there. In addition to all of the things that we have in the back catalog that you can explore at your leisure. As always, if you're not able to support this month, we totally understand. Um, the world's in, in, a, in a state right now, so like we're not holding it against anybody, but if you have the means and there's not anybody else you haven't bothered about it yet, then recommend us to any like friends or family or whoever you think might like what we do and go ahead and leave us a review. I just learned this month that apparently you can leave comments on Spotify and I had a very fun time going through and reading a seven or eight months worth of those. <laughs> With all of that said, back to the movie. Alrighty, so let's kick things off and let's talk about our Marie Antoinette, Kirsten Dunst, making yet another appearance on the show. Mm -hmm. Harmony, how do you feel about this characterization and at this point as well as the casting? I mean, she's pretty great as like an actress in this movie. I think that it has a very clear trajectory for character growth that I like to see because mm -hmm. as I stated already, I don't much care for like the opening 30 minutes of this movie because mm -hmm. it just is such the most obvious period piece kind of nonsense 
where like there's no there's hardly even any dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like carting her around to the next location and the next wardrobe change, which is what a lot of period pieces are. And they bore me to tears. Mm-hmm. And like I, I like I like the sort of fish out of water aspect where it's like she is not as a prim and proper as the French. Those, mm-hmm. the, those like backwoods Austrians of royalty, apparently, where she knows how to eat and dress herself. And God forbid she does that. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I like the growth of this character. Yeah, I do too. I, I quite like that we also kind of see that her start in France is somewhat traumatic. Like They take she, her dog away. That's yeah, the most saddest thing in the world. They take her dog away. They change her clothing. She has to say goodbye to like her family. And it's like. She can have as many French dogs as she wants. But fuck these Austrian dogs. That dog is so cute. That pug. He's so cute. So cute. I think his name's Mops. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, you you have to put into context, which is hard to do because Kirsten Dunst is playing the character throughout the entirety of her life. So she's playing her as both a 14-year-old and as like a mother. Mm-hmm. But A young mother at a, that. A very yes. young mother. Uh, uh, this is a rare instance of actual teen pregnancy going through on the show because it doesn't happen a lot. Yeah, we do, we've done some abortion stories, but we've not had like an actual like birth like a teen mom outside of juno i think that's the only one Mm -hmm. like the threat of pregnancy is is common on our show but it just doesn't happen that often yeah and so sophia coppola says that she thought of kirsten while writing the script because she had just worked with her and she really loved that experience she has this sparkle that i imagine marie antoinette had and jason schwartzman is just so sympathetic which is what struck me about louis while reading antonia's book and Kirsten Dunst said, Sophia was staying at the Chateau Marmont and I went, came over to hang out. And she sort of shyly handed me Antonia Fraser's book and said, I really want you to read this and play Marie Antoinette. I'd do anything for Sophia, but I was definitely intimidated. At that point, I really only knew Marie as the let them eat cake lady. And then Fraser, who wrote the book, says, if I'm being candid, when I first heard Sophia wanted an American to play the queen, I had to pinch myself a bit. But I went with it because Kirsten is a talented actor and she ended up being so perfect for the part. Um, and then Jason Schwartzman says, Sophia said, I wrote this movie and I was hoping you'd play the king, which is a wild proposition. I had never done anything set in the past before. And as a very nervous person with a lot of insecurities, I wanted to do the best job that I could. And that's why he's perfect in that role. That's pretty much what that 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 character is. Um, he's just like, he's so awkward. Yeah, King Louis is so awkward. He doesn't want to fuck. He she, is way like, in over his head. She's just like the, the 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 mounting pressure of needing to like pop a boy out, and she's trying to flirt with him, and he goes, "Oh, your feet are cold. Good night." And rolls over. <laughs> He's so funny. But like even he, you, you see him grow up from like, because like he married her when he was also a teen, right? Yeah, he was 15. And that's something that I think is really important because a lot of times when we talk about these like historical marriages. It's like a or, 32-year-old man. Yeah, like a any of these betrothed sort of things. They tend to be people with huge age gaps, but they are both children in, yeah. in this. Like they're both being thrust together literally like people carrying them, like <laughs> tucking them into bed. And it's like, well, and then they all night. stare at you going like, that's right. Consummate the marriage. Which is so bananas. And I know that that is culturally like a thing with a lot of people. And I'm not trying to like tradition shame or anything. That's fucked. Like it's weird. It's I, fucking weird. I don't know, man. Like fucking when it com- marriage sheets and stuff. 
weirdo shit. So, yes, I'm, I'm going to get back to that in one second. But you even see how, like, boyish he is at the start when he's introduced. And he's just, like, screwing around in the woods, like, smacking his friends with swords, being, I like, know. doing little boy bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, no, he's, like, kind of perfect in this. But I, th- this is this is a rich people behaving badly story. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I always hate about about excess and decadence, God, like a, a curse on the world is old money. Like it's just the goddamn worst. Yeah. Like that. That's another thing about this movie that drives me insane is that I just hate looking at the the lavished living of French royalty because mm-hmm. it's like the most extravagant royalty. Oh, it really is. And the thing that I like is that. I mean, we'll talk about like the set stuff by itself, but how everything is so candy coated. So there is like this pop sensibility to it. Like pinks and baby blues yeah, and stuff I like that. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that a mm-hmm. lot. Um, but in in talking about her two leads, Coppola says, there's a really touching quality about Kirsten's acting that I thought made sense for telling Marie's story. And also Kirsten is German and Marie was Austrian, so I thought she could look like her. I thought Jason could look like Louis if he gained weight. Oh, he did. And he did. Yeah, a little, little, little pudgy. Um, Jamie Dornan, who plays Count Axel von Fersen, um, this is his very first movie. It was his very first audition as well. So glad to see you here, Jamie, Jamie Dornan. But he was like, do you know how much weight Jason had to gain? I remember asking him what he did to put it on. And he said that he just ate donuts and drank beer and melted ice cream cartons, which is not great for you, but he may have been lying to me. Mm-hmm. And Jason Schwartzman goes, oh, I wasn't lying. I read somewhere that your metabolism slows down at night while you're sleeping. So I would set an alarm for 3 a.m., wake up, eat a plate of donuts and go back to sleep. I started around 135 pounds and I got up to something like 180 before filming. I'd go to dinner and order a plate of spaghetti for an appetizer and pizza for dinner. My body was resilient to a certain point and then boom, the weight came out immediately. It was really hardcore. (laughs) And like, here's the thing. I have very not positive thoughts about people who go through dramatic weight changes for roles, Mm -hmm. um, especially when like fat actors exist. Just cast fat actors if you want a fat person. Um, But in this instance, like King Louis was not like a fat person. He was pudgy. Yeah. Like that's really what it is. And so he's not a fat cat. Yeah. No, he was never a fat cat. Like he was like later in life. But when he was younger, he wasn't. Um, So I think like Jason Schwartzman having this like innate nervous energy to him that I think is present even in his most like confident roles. Like even when like, this is also his second appearance on the show. Look at you, Jason Schwartzman. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, even in something like Scott Pilgrim where he's supposed to play like Gideon, who's this like unfuck withable guy. There's like always this undercurrent of like, you're, this is a performance. Like he's insecure. You're so insecure. Like this is, There's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of pressure that comes with being powerful. Yeah. And so I think this is like a great role for him because it really allows him to play in that sandbox of just like, don't look at me or I'll die kind yeah. of insecurity. But at the same time, like, oh my God, I have so much power. So uh, someone take me seriously. For the love of God, take me seriously. Well, I think that especially with both of these two, there's a whole element of them being in over their head for just so many reasons. But especially because like Riptorn dies, like he's old, mm-hmm. but like he dies clearly before. Before he was ready to yes. take over the the, the kingdom, he, he yes. was he was not groomed to be king yet. He was still just kind of going to be like, oh, I get to go on on fox hunts. How lovely! <laughs> um, and so and every time, every single time that there was those dogs, I was just like hounds. <laughs> Look at them; they're so cute. I'm a hound. Borf, borf, borf. <laughs> 
yeah the uh so because we both have just been like fucking off with accents throughout this something that people i assume have noticed is that anybody who has an accent in this movie they are speaking in their mother tongue mm -hmm. so like rose Byrne has an australian accent even though her character's not australian yep um you know everybody else who's british is british anyone who's french is french anyone who's american is american i'm so okay with this i love that and sophia coppola has said that it was an intentional choice because she thinks that it's really distracting when everybody is trying to do the exact same accent because then when they don't match up it's way more obvious then it sounds like lame is Yes. <laughs> so by having everybody just like speak the way that they normally would, like it's fine. It's just, I feel like there's a part of your brain that subconsciously is aware of it. Like you, they may be put on airs. Mm -hmm. Like Rip Torn is trying to not sound like a grumbly old man. But he still sounds like Rip Torn. He still does, but he's like, he's polished it up a little bit. So I think there's just like a, a manner of speaking that comes with the dialogue written where you just kind of naturally have to posture your voice up, but you're not putting on an accent. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. I, I think that your brain can tell the difference. Well, and like whether you realize it or not. And everything about this is un, is unconventional. Like this is an unconventional costume drama. Um, and because they're playing real people, uh, Sofia Coppola wanted to find actors she was excited about and was way more interested in finding actors who had the personalities to match these figures Just rather than like star power. Yeah. Going off vibes, which <laughs> is why we have like Marianne faithful and Molly Shannon in this movie. Yeah. Um, which I think is really, really great um, because they do, they like fit that energy really well. And that's why this movie is endlessly enjoyable because I just think that it's great. And there's a really fun story about Molly Shannon's casting in this. So she was pregnant and right. her agent called and said, Sophia Coppola wants you to be in some movie, but it's in Paris. So he said, you're unavailable. And I was like, wait, you did what? And I told my OBGYN, look, there's this movie I'm dying to do, but I'd have to be in Paris. And, my, and the OBGYN said, when do you need to be there? I'll induce you. We'll make this happen. And now that Sophia has kids, she always says, I cannot believe you told your doctor to push the baby out so you could do my movie. <laughs> No, that seems like some very Molly Shannon shit because she commits. She d definitely does. And Molly Shannon being there was a huge deal for Kirsten Dunst um, because she was like, I was the biggest SNL fan in the world. Sophia is so good at casting people who work well off each other. And the cast was her reimagining of what the court would look like and feel like. There's the funny one. That one's the gossip. That's the mean girls. It was like high school at Versailles. I mean, yes. Yes. And I She'd love like, that. Oh, wow. Rip Torn's new lady. She's a harlot. Yeah, Asia Argento. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I love that description because especially when we look at history or any people in positions of power, there's this like false allure that we put on all of them where it's like, oh, they were better and smarter and brighter and more refined. And it's like, no, they weren't. I mean, we're seeing that like play out. Like it's almost like the fall of Rome, but just for like Elon Musk's own personal Rome. Where it's like <laughs> right. sometimes people aren't geniuses. They just fail upwards and are smart and are just smart enough and just lucky enough, but they're really just a fucking idiot. Yeah, the amount or like we've been seeing this with, you know, everything that's been going on in with Israel and Palestine where people are like, I can't believe X celebrity said this. And I'm like, you can't believe it. A lot of celebrities are dumb as rocks. Yeah, like, they don't get paid to be smart. <laughs> no, they just read whatever sounds good and then they believe it. 
Yes, they believe what they've been told. Like, and that's not to say that like all celebrities are stupid. There are plenty of like really brilliant people, but by and large, like first off, they're just as dumb as the rest of us. Exactly, they're just as dumb as the rest of us. Any civilian on the street can be either an idiot or a smart person. Roll the dice. And if famous people are the same way. And in this case, I would even argue that like it's probably a higher probability that a celebrity doesn't know dick all about something because they don't live on the same planet as we do. No, (laughs) like they don't have to know things for survival the way that we do. Yeah, like we don't have any real context for within the film itself for what like the poor people uh, live like. We really only see like the backs of their heads or like their mm-hmm. faces very briefly illuminated in darkness by pitchforks and torches. Um, but I would imagine during certain eras, and this is where this is built off of, is that like the wealthy have access to like books and schools. So they should theoretically know more mm-hmm. than like an impoverished peasant. Right. Sure. But like, we're in an internet age now. Like, people can read stuff and whether they choose to read something smart or something that's fucking wildly wrong, who knows? Exactly. But we all have access to a lot of the same information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just don't all know how to interpret that information. Correct. <laughs> and so in bringing that point up, uh, there were complaints when this movie came out that, you know, we don't see what's going on with the French Revolution, that we don't see what's going on with, you know, the poor people of France. And the reason being is because this entire movie is through Marie's lens. Like, this is how she saw things. This is how she viewed things. And how she viewed things was a fucking banger party as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Because why not? Like, because she's... It's like walking into an episode of My Super Sweet 16 and it never having to stop. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that there's elements of this movie that are closer to, like, Princess Diaries. Yeah. Where she's like when she goes to the opera and she starts to applaud and you're just like, Oh, you're not supposed to do that. And she's like, but it was lovely. And it's like, look at her. She's breaking down social conventions and stuffiness. Look, she knows how to party and have fun. And I think that if you start to pull away from her, the the, the more you pull away from her, you understand her less and you start to hate her more Mm -hmm. because you're like, look at these people. They're living in the mud Mm -hmm. and look at her. She's eating Macron's every night. I know it's not pronounced Macron's, by the way. <laughs> I had somebody who got really mad at me when I worked at a sweet shop and insisted that they're called Macron's. That's not what they're called. I'm aware. And also, we were a chocolate shop. We wouldn't have them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. Dearest Antoinette, I'm pleased to tell you how wonderful your brothers and sisters are doing in their marriages. Maria Carolina is pregnant expecting her first child in June, and Ferdinand is enchanted with Beatrice, having made her his wife at once. All this news, which should fill me with contentment, is diminished by reflections on your dangerous situation. Everything depends on the wife, if she is willing and sweet. I can't repeat enough the importance for you to employ charm and patience, never ill-humour, to remedy this unfortunate situation. Remember, nothing is certain about your place there until an heir is produced. 
so People Magazine's movie critic Leah Rosen uh, did like a big wrap up of the Cannes Film Festival where this premiered and says the absence of political context upset most critics of Marie Antoinette, director Sofia Coppola's featherweight follow-up to Lost in Translation. Her historical biopic plays like a pop video with Kirsten Dunst as the doomed 18th century French queen acting like a teenage flibberty gibbet intent on being the leader of the cool kids club, which like, yes. I, That's exactly who that character why is. Why are you saying this like it's a bad thing? Fine. Um, and then Roger Ebert, who was actually like very on the money with this one, says that uh, he gave the film four stars out of four. And he said, every criticism I have read of this film would alter its fragile magic and reduce its romantic and tragic poignancy to the level of an instructional film. This is Sofia Coppola's third film centering on the loneliness of being female and surrounded by a world that knows how to use you, but not how to value and understand you. Which like. Ugh, when Raj is right, he's right. That's what every Sofia Coppola movie's kind of about. Yes. Is these rich girls who have that specific struggle. And that's what I love about her movies. And that's why I'm so fucking stoked for Priscilla. Yes. And I love that the music is also reflective of that. And Coppola has said that the reason that she chose things like The Cure and Adam and the Ants and all of these bands. All these new wave and goth bands. Because that's what she listened to as a teenager. Uh-huh. So she's trying to capture like that teenage excited energy. And that's what she listened to as a teenager. And she like, it's almost her way of forcing the audience to be reminded that you're dealing with a child here. You have to get like like, nostalgic, but also stylish. Yeah. And I think that it works really well and I like it. And I like that there are like little elements like scattered through, like occasionally there's like converse Mm -hmm. while some people are wearing like period appropriate shoes because you have to remember the context of what was going on in Marie Antoinette's life, which always gets skirted over. It's the same thing we, talk about when we look at retellings of Romeo and Juliet where not only do they always get it wrong in like the houses are alike they are supposed to be alike they are not supposed to be polar opposites you're missing that point one's not supposed to be rich one's not supposed to be poor right like you've missed that point they mm-hmm. miss it all the time but the other big one is that they are 14 and this is taking place over like 72 hours yeah like their their decisions cannot be based in logic because they are unreliable narrators because they are children. They're just flying off of feelings. I think when it comes to like adults interpreting work like that, something that you lose with Romeo and Juliet, and I think that a lot of critics were losing with this movie, is you know what the destination is, mm-hmm. and you sort of don't fucking care how we get there. Yeah. You you want to see her be beheaded. Like, as a person who's watching this experience, because it's one of the only things you know about it. Essentially, Sofia Coppola's writing her own You're Wrong About episode with this movie. She kind of is. Um, but yeah, everyone's only focused on fucking, I know what the end is, and she didn't get to the end, and I didn't like how we were getting there anyway, so I think this is wrong. Fuck the person. Fuck this as a character study. I'm upset. This is trash. Yeah. Like, I was thinking about this the other day in terms of comedy as, as well as biopics, but that, I think that's its own conversation. Eh, we can have both. But I was thinking about this with comedy, right? Where they've been posting these videos on SNL of Chloe Trost, the new cast member of SNL, who is a very young girl, like early like to mid-20s girl. Sure. And she has like a very specific sense of humor that I find very funny. But the amount of people that comment on these videos like, I thought she's supposed to be funny, 
or this is what passes for comedy these days, like those sorts of comments. And it's just like a Q&A. Like they ask her questions and she gives answers and her answers are funny. And in my head, I'm like, do they not think she's funny because they don't get the joke? Or do they not think she's funny because she comes up with an answer that they themselves did not think of? Because there's that whole like blue collar comedy of like, it's funny because it's true. Mm -hmm. Is it actually funny like, do you think this is a humorous observation or are you laughing because it's the same observation that you would have and now you feel validated mm -hmm. and having somebody validate your uh, observations makes you feel smarter and special? You know, I mean, people said the same things about the early 90s crew of mm -hmm. Adam Sandler and Chris Farley and Chris Rock and just ev all of those friends. Yeah. They said the same thing about like, they're not funny. Right. And it's like, one, comedy subjective, but also then what is funny? What is funny? And like, that's the same thing that we see with like biopics where people are constantly questioning like, well, what is it that makes a good biopic? Does it need to be borderline a documentary or does it need to be about the heart of that story? I mean, it needs to be both. I don't think so, though. I, I think I think you need factual stuff in the story and like you can bend your rules as long as you don't break them like Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. Like that that's a bad example. It's a right. terrible movie. It's a terrible retell. Like Brian May and Roger Taylor seemingly hate Freddie Mercury for how they decided to tell his story. Mm -hmm. Um I think that you can bend that while keeping it factually accurate with something like Rocket Man. Yes. Okay. I agree with you completely. Where I'm like, you need to follow the correct format of what this person's life is and hit important milestones but you don't need to do it as a documentary because then you should just watch a documentary. Then just watch a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's it's weird that we're doing this episode um, a couple days after I just got home from, uh, I, I was very fortunate to go to the premiere of The Iron Claw. Apparently you just sobbed your face off. I fucking sobbed my face off. Maybe my most anticipated movie of the year. Oh my God, I can't uh, wait to cry there, again. Up there with John Woo. <laughs> who's back baby <laughs> yeah i'm gonna be i'm gonna be a mess all over again but that is a story based on the von eric family like an actual family mm -hmm. and yes i know how this ends and it goes to the places where it goes and it is fucking heart-wrenching but what i was so taken by with that movie is that it's not just an episode of dark side of the ring mm -hmm. it's not just the espn 30 for 30 wrestling with the curse like it's not a documentary it's like no 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 we're instead of going to give you all of the facts which you can just read in a history book mm -hmm. we're going to show you the stuff that can only be shown through through movies which is the love of brotherhood and their relationships and how much they loved each other the beating heart yes the beating heart of that story the part that gets you know, ignored because we have to get all of the facts right. We gotta focus on the tragedy. Yes. And, I, <sighs> and Marie Antoinette does the same thing for me where it's like, yes, we know that like the French Revolution's gonna happen. She's gonna get beheaded. People are gonna fucking hate her. We know that's where it's headed. That's part of the history. What we don't know is like, what were those parties like that people critiqued her for? What was it like to be a 14 year old thrust into this world that she was not prepared for? Mm -hmm. What were like, why was she possibly having an affair? What was her marriage like? Like, these are the things that we never see because it's always like, okay, well, the marriage was fine. And then they had some kids and then the kids died and um, she might've had an affair and we, you know, we can't really be sure about it. But um, then the French revolution happened and she got beheaded. And it's like, uh, there's, 
there's a person in that story. Like there's yeah. a person with feelings and wants and desires and hopes and dreams and excitement and life. And that is being ignored for a laundry list of facts. Yeah. So thinking about this right now, it, it, it does kind of come back to comedy where like the core root of comedy is set up expectations and then like the delivery of the joke. Mm -hmm. And since comedy has been around for so long, you often have to subvert those expectations and you know, zig when you should have zagged. Mm -hmm. And like, that's that some people don't like that. They just wanted to follow the most basic trajectory to get to the most satisfying thing. And I think knowing what the ending is being like, Oh, I know what the punchline of this joke is, but then you didn't give me the punchline. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. Larry, the cable guy didn't say, now that's funny. I don't care who you are right there. How am I supposed to know if I'm supposed to laugh? <laughs> so like there's, there's that. Um, I also think, like, as, as a general thing, I don't sort of care about Marie Antoinette as, like, a historical figure mm -hmm. as much as I care about Marie Antoinette as a character in this. Mm -hmm. Like, I find it's interesting, but, like, I don't have a ton of investment. In a similar way, like, I really don't give a shit about Elvis as a character, but mm -hmm. I care immensely about Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Because yeah. if you're going to tell a story about this larger-than-life figure then you should use their celebrity and their status and their fame and their legend to the advantage of telling the story. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, Elvis obviously takes a lot of, it, it bends a lot. It doesn't quite break, but it bends a lot of rules. It bends some history. Boz allegedly has a four hour cut somewhere in him and I would love nothing more than to see it. I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. But what makes that story ultimately interesting is not about Elvis being rich and famous and being in Vegas and being a celebrity. It's about how he's the most well-known celebrity, arguably in American history. Mm -hmm. And yet he was still exploitable mm -hmm. as like an insecure young man by an older dude who was in charge of him and manipulated him. Mm -hmm. That's a compelling story. And using the biggest figure you possibly could to show that it's still possible is a powerful concept. Mm-hmm. Doing this with Marie Antoinette where it's like, oh, it's this historical figure that we associate with the deepest lavishes of French royalty and living. Okay, well, let's break that down. Mm -hmm. Let's use her as a vehicle to tell a story about humanity and being presented and, and being forced into a position that you don't necessarily want to and never asked to be. Like, you didn't ask to be born rich or asked to be married off to, like, the king of France. Yeah. That's not a thing, but like, let's use that as a medium for telling a story about a girl. Definitely. And so going back to this oral history, uh, KK Barrett, who is one of the production designers, says that Sophia is an amazing director for production designers because she's very trusting. I had never done a historical film before, so I don't know if I was the ideal person for the job, but I was adaptive. I'd been to Paris before, but had never visited Versailles. I wanted to explore the world through Kirsten's eyes as she's thrust into it. Sophia trusted my sensibility, and I trusted her, so we figured it out together. And Anne Seibel, who is the supervising art director, says, KK and I made a very good team. If you ask me to design an American period film, I need to work with an American who could speak them to the minutia of their culture. KK didn't know much French history and needed me to provide a certain perspective. He and I broke down the script by rooms and designed them according to the locations we had had access to then I coordinated the building and dressing of the sets 
Barrett says, I didn't just get to design historical interiors, but also opera sets, horse-drawn carriages, all kinds of stuff I'd never done before. We piece sets together throughout France because we had to fill four days a week with other scenes. Then we go to Versailles every Monday to shoot everything that couldn't be recreated, like Marie's arrival or anything in the Hall of Mirrors. Coppola says we shot on location so we wouldn't have to shoot on sound stages. The atmosphere from being in actual places brings so much to the finished film. You can tell on the screen there was a lot of movie magic involved. And then Veronique Mellery, I think is how you say her name, uh, was the set decorator and says, I researched photographs of the interiors and various color combinations and patterns. I went to several studios with silk swatches from that era, galleries that specialized in 18th century antiques. It was a period film, but Sophia was clear that she wanted it to have a contemporary feeling. And so I like that so much because it's like, this is, I think, going into what we were talking about with story of like bending without breaking. Like, is this a spot for spot you know, completely period accurate recreation of the time period. No, but it's fucking close. Mm -hmm. And if, unless you are somebody who like worships at the altar of this sort of thing, you're not going to notice because I think especially through it for American viewers, because our knowledge of like world history is not great compared to like other countries. Mm -hmm. It's because our history isn't as old. It doesn't go back as far. Yeah, it's not as, it doesn't go back as far, but also like America itself is like a a collection of a bunch of different little countries. So I might not know a lot about like European history and the the minutiae between different countries in terms of like architecture or costuming, but I can do that with America. I can tell you what's different about the Midwest versus the Southwest versus the Pacific Northwest. And like, I'm not going to be like Mims and accidentally say that Houston's in the Midwest. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Um, That's not why he's hot. (laughs) Uh, But no, I think that that's really smart. And then by adding the anachronistic elements to it, it also ties it all together because it does kind of trick your brain a little bit into watching this. And you're like, no, this feels real. Like this feels lived in. This feels exactly like how she was feeling, what she was seeing, what this world was like. It's such a well-crafted film, which is why it won, you know, an Oscar for costuming as it absolutely should have. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the spectacle is so much of this movie. Oh my god, like, it's beautiful. It's creating a fantasy. Um the, the, like seeing a movie like this and knowing the what it is and who it's being made by, it breaks my heart knowing that if you made this today, those beautiful vistas would just be a green screen mm-hmm. and it would not look good. You're and totally it right. Wouldn't look magical. And part of that movie magic is also kind of part of the history that we learned. So Barrett says, I researched historical portraits from the era only to discover that they're all lies. They were commissioned by people of wealth to make them look good and not an honest representation of what life actually looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even those who worked at Versailles would argue amongst themselves about what the correct information was. Once we saw that, we realized there was some wiggle room for interpretation. For example, when she crossed the border into France, there was no documentation for where that took place. We invented a royal tent made for that moment with a long corridor passage where Marie gets stripped of her Austrian heritage. So, like, there's no documentation of that. So to say whether that's how it did or did not happen, no one fucking knows. For For all we know... Sofia Coppola figured this out (laughs) and invented it. And that's what it looks like. Works for me. Yeah. Like it's fine. And I think that's also something that's really important when we talk about like history, especially and why I think it's really silly for people to be like, "Mm, Marie Antoinette is not historically accurate, actually, because 
our history is only accurate if we believe the historian's documentation of that event. Oh yeah, history is 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 written by the winners in large quotes, right? Yeah, but even then, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week with You Are My First Boyfriend, where you think about like even your high school memories and it's like, this is how I remember it. And it's like, well, is that how the person next to you remembered it? Mm -hmm. Is that how it actually happened? Or has that memory been morphed by other things in your life? Well, I think that's beneficial in this movie that it's everything is told from Murray's perspective. Agreed completely because we're seeing it as like she would have remembered it and this is not a shade to a 14-year-old because I was a 14-year-old. We're unreliable narrators. We cannot be trusted. <laughs> we like to tell stories and paint ourselves as better and everyone else is worse and yeah. what have you. Um, I mean, as far as like her and her coming of age as like a, a young mother, like it almost feels like she she gets to retire. A little bit, like, yeah. Like she's like, I don't know, she's like uh this drug sniffing dog at the airport. And it's like, you've served your purpose. Now you get to go live on a nice farm. <laughs> totally. Um, I don't know. That's, that's kind of what it feels like where she, she popped out a son and now she gets to go live in her little cottage cabin and get away from it all. Getting away from the things that are so distinctly French. Yes. And so think, speaking of things being distinctly French, the one area of the set that they did like really go above and beyond to make sure it was historically accurate um, is the bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, so the bedroom is the most historically accurate of all the sets. The fabrics were used were incredibly detailed reprints of the real thing. They built a lot of furniture because they can't you're not you're not going to get antiques for that shit. Sure. Um, because they wanted to be honest to that history, but also to the craftsmanship of that time period because the craftsmanship is like kind of bananas. Um, and when Marie came to Versailles, everything was new to her. Like this is all brand new stuff. Mm -hmm. So Sophia said that everything needed to look bright and clean and not faded. So they designed her boudoir with an eye towards opulence. The bedding was hand embroidered. There's a lot of camera tests with different fabrics to nail down what looked best. There was so much effort into making it look as like, accurate as they could because Marie's real bedroom was decorated with bright gold and turquoise. So it wasn't a complete artistic license on Coppola's part. Um, but you never see those pops of color in period films. And no, it's always, just, it's always so drab and it's dusty. Always, it's it, yes. Like so much fucking white. Yeah. It's like, like white and beige. And I, it, I, something, something that is, I do think is an element of this that I rather like, which is that, uh, that the the king, like Rip Torn King, not Jason Schwartzman King, like his bow, his uh, his harlot he scooped up off the streets. I love her costume designs the best because they're all of these really dark colors, mm -hmm. which are clearly the most expensive colors. Because mm -hmm. if you want something that bold, then you have to use way more of something yeah. in order to do it. But they look the best. And they're just like, ooh, I can't believe she's wearing that dress. It's ugly. I'm like, but I like that one the best. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I love the look of this. I love that everybody kind of has their own distinct colors that they play with because, mm -hmm. you know, like Rose Byrne is constantly in these like very beautiful like gold shades. Yeah. And I think that is reflective of her character. So Rose Byrne also talked for this oral history and says, I'd really only done Troy and Wicker Park at that point, which were both fairly serious. Marie Antoinette was the first time I'd done something funny since it quickly became apparent that the Duchess is the film's comic relief. Mm -hmm. Sophia compared her to an uncorked champagne bottle, warm, fizzy, and fabulous. Yeah. 
And I think that is so, so accurate. I, mean, I think she's the one I would want to hang out with. Oh my God, yes. And I love a movie that understands that Rose Byrne is one of the funniest people on the planet. Yeah. She's so brilliant as a comedic actress. Yes. And I'm very glad that we're in this era right now where people are understanding that and letting Rose Byrne be funny because she's yeah. so funny. She's marvelous. Um, but she's so delightful in this. Like she's absolutely like your fun teenage best friend that you want to tell everything to. Mm -hmm. And she's the life of the party without being like the party, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. Like the party starts when she's there, but she doesn't start the party. Yes. Like I, um, I love that. Uh, speaking of the slumber party vibes of hanging out with Rose Byrne, like they even sneak out to go to like a masquerade ball. Mm -hmm. They're like, shh, shh, don't know. Don't, don't shh, wake my dad. Shush. <laughs> so then they go out and that's where she meets like this handsome general that she's going to bone. Not Rose Burns, Marie Antoinette. Yeah. So, okay. Let's talk about Jamie Dornan. Um, so Jamie, Dor Jamie Dornan, you know, like I said earlier, this is his first movie. For those that don't know his name, he is going to go on. He's going to be Mr. Gray um, in Fifty Shades. Mm -hmm. um, more importantly, he's going to be in Barb and Star, um, go to Vista Del Mar, where he's going to sing a beautiful rendition on the beach with a crab. He's magnificent. He's so goddamn great in yeah. that movie. <laughs> um, but Sophia had told Jamie Dornan that her reference for his role was Adam Ant, who oozes sex appeal. Which, like, that's what plays when they're fucking. Definitely. Like, the shot from the soundtrack uh, from, like, the album, which I remember seeing uh, quite a bit, honestly, in thrift stores over the years, which, like, it's a shame because the soundtrack fucking kicks ass. Mm -hmm. But it's the shot of her where she's, like, holding the fan in front of, like, her bosoms and she's got, like, oh, the, it's long, such a good shot. the long knee-high things on. That's when Adam and the Ant, that's when Adam Ant plays uh -huh. when they're going to fuck. Yeah. It's it's so perfect. And Sophia did borrow from, you know, there was this thing in the 80s where people were kind of playing with uh, like old European stuff and redoing it like mm -hmm. like you're you're putting on the ritzes. These uh, these sophistopops. Yeah. These, these new wave romantics, as it yes, were. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, Adamant, I think he was going for like a some sort of like ranger cavalryman, but I don't always just like he looks like a pirate. <laughs> kind of does. Adamant used to be so cool and then he lost his mind. But this like very much was a thing. Like I think about was it Bow Wow Wow where they do that uh album cover where she's They paint her in and she's naked and, and she's also, naked. she was like 14 or yeah, something Yeah, she's at the time. very young. Very no no. Yeah, but it's based <laughs> on of course, you know, a, a very famous painting. Um so that's you know, th this was just a thing that was happening when Sofia Coppola was a teenager. So mm -hmm. I'm not surprised in the slightest that those elements are then going to show up um, in this movie. But Jamie Dornan was like really intimidated once he realized that this character is based on Adam Ant because he's like, that guy's so cool. Yeah. And I'm just like an awkward Irish guy. And to think that it's like, and you're about to be like the most famous problematic daddy Dom that ever lived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> He's just making a career off of being a, a handsome hunk. And that's the thing with those handsome hunks. Like, he got to do Barb and Star. We like to see Gosling and Barbie this year. It's like, let handsome guys be funny. I know we don't like to cast handsome guys as funny guys, but, like, they can be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, like, the best possible thing. Yeah. And, like, honestly, like, the fucking scene in this is hilarious. It is. It's like, real great. It's so absurd and goofy. And then she has the fantasy of like him riding on his horse with explosions behind him. And he just <laughs> looks like the biggest masculine man. And her husband is a gooey Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about Jason Schwartzman and King Louis' sexual things. Yes. 
So Schwartzman had met with two different um, historians at UCLA, and they gave him completely different answers uh, about Louis's sexual issues. Um, one would say that it was true. Another would say that it's been disproven. And Schwartzman said that he found that very liberating um, because there's not a ton of information about Louis compared to Marie. So he could focus on the script and just learn everything about him through Sophia's filter. Mm-hmm. I also really like that it's not been super confirmed. The one thing that has been confirmed, a lot of people think like, oh, I bet that means that Louis was gay. That seems to not have been a thing. I did do some research because I that. That's a thing I've been hearing parroted for, you know, the better part. That was also a thing I was asking while we were watching. It was like, is he impotent or is he gay? (laughs) No, and it seems like it really was just a combination of he was just like a really awkward guy who was really uncomfortable. And the pressure to have a son, um, like, freaked him out. And, like, it made him not want to be intimate because it was too much pressure. And it's Mm -hmm. like, dude, I get it. Like, I get it. Um, There are some historians that argue that in today's context, we would probably see louis as like asexual because he also didn't have like a ton of mistresses or something outside mm-hmm. of his wife the way Unlike that like most royalty most royalties does um, also like isn't, he just wasn't interested in sex isn't there also like the the rumor that maybe like his foreskin wouldn't roll down yeah so there's also a rumor that he had uh, a condition um i don't remember what the actual term for it is but it basically like means that your foreskin's really tight and it can't roll back um so because he was hurt yeah, he was uncircumcised. So that would having sex would be a problem. But we do know that they eventually do have sex because they had children. Um, but then at the same time, there's also the thought of like, were those his kids or were those Marie's affairs partners kids? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Those um, blonde jeans came through strong. Right. But Louis didn't have, you know, like looking at like Punnett squares, it's mm-hmm. it's probably not his kids. Yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> her, her blonde hair though. <laughs> You're winning, I hope. And um, it's quite late. I think it's time for the dealers to return to Paris. You said we could play, but you never specified the home. <laughs> You're worth it. I won again! No! <laughs> <laughs> Give me my chance. I think you're really good at this game. Oh no, don't go to sleep. We're gonna watch the sunrise. Don't you want to see them? I'd rather get some much needed sleep. Have you ever watched the sunrise? So, you know, we've got that going on, but then, you know, we talked about a little bit about the art design, but also the costuming is just absolutely beautiful. Um, apparently Sophia brought macarons for mm-hmm. the costume designer. Macrones? <laughs> yeah, Macrones. Uh, <laughs> brought Macrones to the costume designer, like those beautiful like pastel, and was like, here you go. This is what I want. Mm-hmm. And that is what this movie looks and feels like to me, is just a, b- a box of French pastry. Which like... <laughs> I was joking about this while we were watching it, where it's like, man, she's eating nothing but like cinnamon buns and 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 just all these desserts and cake and champagne. And it's like, that's a lot of sugar. How is she fitting into all these like tight corseted dresses? And then I thought about that for a second. I was like, no, compared to our American desserts, I feel like French desserts in the modern day have maybe half the sugar. Mm-hmm. And during that time, like it was maybe like a quarter of the sugar. She's fine. It's just carbs. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's not like, it's like, uh, what is it, that you could give someone a Cinnabon now and it would kill a Victorian child? Right. Stuff like that, where it's like, oh, no, I'm sure they were much more mild. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, there is like something like very sweet about a lot of the the costuming in this because everything is so like it's very femme. It's like mm-hmm. very feminine, and I like that quite a bit. It's just these very satiny patterns, very frilly, very what you would imagine as France. Yeah. Like honestly, one of my favorite French characters, and unfortunately, it's in the Patriot. Um, is when you have the final climax and they have that one French general who's fighting alongside Mel Gibson and he's wearing like a baby blue suit. He's like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die with style. Yes. <laughs> and like, so Marie Antoinette was like hardcore into fashion because why wouldn't she be? She's a, she was a fucking teenager. Like, and now she has money. Of course, mm-hmm. fashion's going to be a thing you're into. Sure. Um, but Kirsten Dunst was talking about how the costume designer though was also like very open to any ideas that she had. So for example, the scene after Marie's child has died, she was wearing this like pale blue dress, like, Mm -hmm. you know, wearing it in style. But then she had suggested that she wears a red ribbon around her waist that makes it look like she'd been cut in half. That was Kirsten Dunst's idea. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most striking visuals when she like lays in the bed and she's got this red ribbon on this like pale blue dress. And it's like, oh, this is a mourning feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love that. But yeah, they, they visited like the Costume Institute. They did so much research into this to make it look the way that it does and you know we talk a lot about Marie Antoinette as this like masterpiece in terms of like costume drama and art design which it is just style it absolutely is it's just nothing but pure style because obviously the costume obviously the set design Mm -hmm. but also the soundtrack also the soundtrack like every single little element of this is just stylish. yeah all of those elements really come together and are really beautiful but the thing that gets slept on when we talk about Marie Antoinette is that Sofia Coppola made a good story like the script is good these characters are interesting and I love that that it doesn't end the way that it's supposed to the in a Marie Antoinette story yeah it's, that's what it is the party's fucking over like mm-hmm. that's what happens and that's why you get the look of of the of the bedroom just destroyed and no one is there. It's destroyed. Not because we're having a good time. It's destroyed because we're having a bad time. Mm-hmm. And I really very like spring that. breakers of it. Oh yeah, kind <laughs> of, but I really, really like that because I also think that it's weird when people are demanding of like, I want to see her beheaded. Yeah. I want to see the violence depicted against women. You know that it happens. Why do you have to see it? Well, especially in the two thousands, we wanted that more. Oh God, yeah. Like, we were so, like bloodthirsty so then. Yeah, so much of like of our popular music was extremely misogynistic, whether that be new metal or punk or rap or what have you. Like they're all really misogynistic periods for like every popular genre at the time. Um, mostly I think they're rebelling against like what they saw as like the bubblegum pop of Britney and Christina, and it's a whole larger discussion than that, but easy condensed version. Um, but also we're just like in a very hyper violent period where the Iraq war is happening. We're in the, uh, you know, we're dealing with the trauma of it by producing a shit ton of like torture porn and really violent, nasty fucking horror films where we really make women suffer through them. Yeah, people are calling for blood and it makes sense that they would do this from this era, but it's just really more telling of its era. Non-complimentary. Right. <laughs> and so what's a, a sad thing is that this movie made... million at the box office against a $40 million budget, which when you account for things like marketing and it's not a profit. No, like this movie generally needed like what 
double in order to break even. Yeah. That's usually the rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, and Sofia Coppola admits like, yeah, this flopped and it's a bummer, but she also does recognize that there has been a reclamation of it mm-hmm. um, in, in recent years, which I think is really good. Um, when she was promoting her book, um, she did an interview with Vanity Fair when she goes, I'm always happy that I get to make what I want to make. And I was happy we got to make that movie, but nobody saw it. Um, which is just such a, a shame. And she goes, it was a flop. So the fact that it's lived on and people talk about it has been really satisfying because so much work went into it. It makes me happy that it's found its way and that people enjoy it. Um, and that she even like hesitated originally signing on to do Priscilla because she was worried that it would feel too similar mm-hmm. to Marie Antoinette. Um, but in both instances, she views them as these are not like historic epics. Like she does not consider Marie Antoinette to be a, a historic epic. Mm-hmm. She considers it a coming of age story, which I would it agree is. with that because it can't be an epic. It doesn't have epic enough shots. It doesn't have epic enough conflict or or, or battles or anything like that mm-hmm. to properly be an epic. She says, my biggest fear was making a masterpiece theater kind of movie. I didn't want to make a dry historical period movie with a distant cold tableau of shots. I wanted to make an impressionistic portrayal of these figures in the same way that I wanted Lost in Translation to feel like you had just spent a couple hours of to- in Tokyo. I wanted this film to let audiences feel what it might be like in Versailles during that time and really get lost in that world. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is such an important approach to this story because you want the audience to get lost in this world because that's what Marie Antoinette did. Especially because it's just so dreamy. It's so dreamy. Like, of course, this is how things were going to play out. She fell into this world and it's it's magical and it's beautiful and it's it's filled with wonder and things like you are beyond comprehension. Of course, you're going to revel in that. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to be able to make really great decisions because you've been thrust into it at the age of 14. Well, and now for, for the rest of her life, she's not living on planet earth. Mm-hmm. She's in that celebrity status. We talked about earlier where you're not like, you shouldn't be looked towards to be making these smart decisions, which is why like the idea of Royal families are inherently fucking crazy to me mm-hmm. because it's like you, how, can you be of the people or like a person that's making decisions for the people when you've never been a person? Yeah. You've always been an idea, a concept, like a legend, a status. You can't like you're incapable of making those decisions. <laughs> yep. In in her case, like sooner or later, you got to wake up from your dream. Sooner or later, that party's over. Mm-hmm. Um, And hers was just a lot more abrupt than most people's. Yeah. And like, I don't even... I'm not trying to be like Marie Antoinette did nothing wrong or anything, but because that's I mean, not, she was the, the issue is, th- is that she was a scapegoat. Well, that's a big part of it. Yeah. But also it's like the things that she did that were not well thought out. Like when you take into the context of where she came from, how she was brought up, what her lived experience was like, none of it surprises me is really what it is. So when I watch this film as a coming of age story, like the, the two pieces that are always so like, Ugh, to me is when she goes to the opera and the first time and she starts applauding and everyone stares at her because it's like, why the fuck would you do that? That's so But they're willing to go improper. along with it because it's like, oh, it's the queen. Yeah, but she's the queen, so they do it. And then at the end, she does it again and nobody claps with her and it's like, oh, they mm-hmm. all fucking hate this girl. They mm-hmm. hate her. And it, it, it it's just weird. It's so weird because it's an example of 
well, what are you valuing in that moment? When they clap with her, they're valuing her as the queen. When they don't clap with her, they're valuing, you know, b- c- proper behavior or whatever bullshit social standards that we're putting in front of people. Mm-hmm. Like, they're basically tone policing. <laughs> like, this is like 18th century tone policing. Sure. <laughs> Let them eat cake. That's such nonsense. I would never say that. Uh, and here, you're having an orgy with quite a big group. <laughs> I think I'm here sucking your toes. Don't they ever get tired of these ridiculous stories? Oh, and they say you gave Thomas Jefferson a special tour of your gardens. <laughs> Is Jefferson admiring the royal bush? <laughs> That's awful. So as we're closing out on this, I do want to reference the Roger Ebert review, which he titled it Pretty in Pink, which Roger. Pretty perfect, yeah. Roger, baby. Like, you got it. You fucking nailed it. What am I going to do to review this Marie Antoinette historical piece? I'm going to reference a John Hughes movie. Like, that's how you know that you he gets it. <laughs> um, so he made a review by making a list of 10 things that occurred to him while watching Marie Antoinette. And I love all of them. The first one is uh, the quote that I noted earlier about this being her third film centering on the loneliness of being female, surrounded by a world that knows how to use you, but not how to value and understand you. Um, So I love that. Uh, The second thing he noticed, Kirsten Dunst is pitch perfect in the title role as a 14-year-old Austrian princess who is essentially purchased and imported to the French court to join with the clueless Louis XVI to produce an heir. She has self-possession, poise, and high spirits, and they are contained within a world that gives her no way to usefully express them. So she frolics and indulges herself with a cocoon of rigid court protocol. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, number three, no, this is not informative. Um, and I do like that he says that this movie is a self-governing architectural island like Kane's Xanadu that shuts out politics, reality, poverty, and society. Yeah. I love that. Um, he says that Schwartzman, like Bill Murray's character in Lost in Translation, plays a sexually passive sad sack who would rather commiserate than take on an active role. One one of the many reasons why I prefer Sofia Coppola to her father is because men ain't shit. <laughs> and that just feels that feels good in this day and age. <laughs> I do love Sofia. I can't I, I Francis when he's good he's good. When he's not good he's he has really higher highs, he has lower lows. That I agree Sophia's with. Sophia's more consistently that good. That I agree with. Um, he also gave a shout out to Danny Houston, who is priceless as Marie's older brother. I love Danny Houston in this house. We love and worship the entire Houston family. Um, that's just incredible. Number five, all of Coppola's films, and this one most of all, use locations to define the lives of the characters. Allowed complete access to Versailles, she shows a society as single-mindedly devoted to the care and feeding of Marie Antoinette as beehive centers on its queen. Ooh, I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that so very much. And so Ebert has plenty more points, but the last one that I wanted to point out, because I think this is a great way to kind of encapsulate this film. Coppola has been criticized in some circles for her use of contemporary pop overlay, jarring intrusions of the now upon the then. 
but no one ever lives as then. It is always now. Many characters in historical films seem somehow aware that they are living in the past. Marie seems to think she is a teenager living in the present, which of course she is, and the contemporary pop references invite the audience to share her present with ours. Foreman's Amadeus had a little of that with its purple wigs. And I love that even Roger Ebert could see this. He could see what so many other critics could not. Mm -hmm. This is not a movie looking back on Marie Antoinette. This is a movie of Marie Antoinette coming of age, living her best life. And it is authentic and honest and truthful to what that teenage experience is like. And for that, this is the ultimate telling of Marie Antoinette as far as I'm concerned because it's not constantly heading towards the beheading. It's not constantly dropping little hints that this is all going to crash and burn. There's there's some ominous stuff you see in the background of yeah. like, like most things where it's like, ah, yes, it's the specter of your future, the ghost of Christmas future who will go ahead and you, you're marching into the abyss. Yeah, that doesn't uh. exist in this movie. Like she's just living her best life and then yeah, party's over and that fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think this movie catches way too much heat. Um, I think it's beautiful. I don't know if this is Sofia Coppola's best movie, but it's definitely up there as far as I'm concerned. So when people put it towards the bottom, I think they're banana pants because this movie rules. No, the bottom is clearly a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> did she actually direct that? Yes, she did. Oh my God. Sophia. She, I think she wrote, directed, and produced it. Sophia, what are you doing, girl? <laughs> um, so yeah, that uh, I think that will take us out on Marie Antoinette. So Harmony, the time has come. Marie Antoinette is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying her tickets so she can go on her own? So my, my, my feelings on this changed over the course of the entire watching experience. And then I sat with it. I was like, oh, we're good. Like, as I said, like the opening parts of this movie, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to send this one on its own. I don't know about this is for me. But yeah, we, we climbed. We climbed up the ladder. We got to a maybe and we're going to settle down in a yes. Oh, look at you. Um, I like looking at this movie. I like what this movie's doing. I again it's a period piece, so I'm like I don't know how many times I'm going to watch this movie like or experience it, but like it's just so well done, mm -hmm. right? I I would be probably more inclined to listen to the soundtrack again than I would watch the movie because the soundtrack is just choice. But uh yeah, no, everyone's doing exactly the best version of what they should be doing and it's just really cool also to see a female director give be given 40 million dollars to just make their passion project. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't fucking happen anymore, especially like in 2006. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, no, Marie Antoinette's great. Um, I'm especially excited for Priscilla. I'm 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 going in with tempered expectations, but I sort of hope that's going to be my new favorite Sofia Coppola movie. Hell yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, friends, thank you so much for listening. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at. This ends at prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor or at Blue Sky over at uh, Harmony Colangelo. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use Tidal as our theme song. Harmony, what band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Marie Antoinette? There's so many ways I could have gone with this one. But the person that I'm shouting out this time is Cowboy Malfoy. Great name. So marvelous. Um... They've been around for a couple of years just releasing singles intermittently, 
And the early songs are kind of a little more like dreamy synth songs, which are good, but where they popped on my radar is their song How I'd Kill, uh, which has a spectacular music video. But that, as well as its follow-up that came out fairly recently called Head Start, are like these fantasy bossa nova songs mixed with like a lot of alternative influence and they are just wonderful. And I really, really hope that I get a whole album of this. Like, I don't know if there's an official plan for that or anything like that. It's just singles trickling out here and there, but God, I just love the chill vibes of this and just like the fantasy scapes they create. It's, it's, it tickles the dusty Springfield fan of me quite, quite extravagantly. So go check out a uh, cowboy Malfoy and keep an eye out for like future releases from them. Awesome. All righty. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.